This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the Maria Curie of tech journalism. Getting close to this stuff will probably kill me, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a live interview I just did with investigative journalist Julia Angwin, who until very recently was the editor-in-chief of The Markup. We talked about why she was fired on Monday by her co-founders, Jeff Larson and Sue Gardner. She took me aside in January with um, with Jeff, the two of them, and they said, you're not suited to be editor-in-chief. And the reasons were things like, you don't like meetings. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Um, but right. I did go to all of them. We'll also talk about Angwin's history of investigating tech companies like Facebook at the Wall Street Journal and ProPublica. These are companies that are almost ungovernable. They are bigger than any nation. And they regulate speech around the world. Like their decisions about what people can say to each other is the decision in any country. This interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. We were there for a party celebrating the fifth anniversary of Vox.com and we recorded it on the rooftop, which is why you'll hear some street noise in the background. So let's go there now to hear my interview with journalist Julia Angwin. Hi, everybody. First of all, I want to know what the hell you're doing out here at this time of day. <laughs> like, what the, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm excited to drive my kids to work, uh, to school, to work, whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sorry I'm dressed like this. I'm freezing. Um, so I'm going to stay dressed like Johnny Cash this morning. So you're going to have to deal with it. So I'm really excited to do this. I love Vox. Um, we Recode has recently uh, been united with Vox, and we're doing all kinds of cool things together, and we're very excited, um, including these events. And it's the, their fifth anniversary of Vox itself. It's, I think, the 59th anniversary of what Recode has been over the years. Um, but we've been going for a long, long time. Um, but we've just started doing these amazing live podcasts. And so when they asked me to do this, I thought, who could we get where we could talk about journalism and where things are going? And perhaps there's a little bit of controversy we could talk about at the same time. Um, and so I brought up someone I've worked with for many years, Julia Angwin, uh, from the mark, well, not from the markup. Um, so she's going to come up. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about the markup and a bunch of other things. Come on. Sit in my gold chair, my golden chair. So anyway, so uh, Julia, Julia and I worked at the Wall Street Journal together uh, 20 years ago, 30? I don't know. All right, okay. So we, uh, we, we worked in traditional journalism for a long time, and both of us left traditional journalism to do other things. Um, let's, let's get markup out of the way. Tell us what happened there. Now explain what the markup was supposed to be, what happened there, and uh, any other 
incredibly awful details you could bring to mind. <laughs> Um, well, it's great to be here, guys. Um, I never knew being fired <laughs> from the company I founded would be so good for my uh, social media presence. Um, okay. And um, I left ProPublica a year ago to found um, the markup. I have been a tech journalist along with Kara for 25 years, and I had built up a specialty in doing investigative journalism alongside and with computer programmers who would help me build big data sets and analyze data to, to do really deep investigative work. So let's, talk, let's just, before you get to yeah. that, how did you decide to do that? Because you were a traditional media, you were in media, I was I was in the early yeah. internet, one of the few people who was covering tech a long ago. Talk about how you got into that. Why did you, you had covered just companies, right? Yeah. I mean, actually, you know, I remember I covered um, Jim Bankoff when he yes. ran AOL and I covered AOL and it, I mean, you obviously were the original AOL person, but I uh, wrote the book on it literally. But um, I remember actually Jim Bankoff, I wrote a story. He He's the first reference ever being quoted using the term social media. Oh. It's in the OED in a story that I wrote about him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he um, was, he was running the content stuff yeah, for AOL. Right. But, um, the way, I, the way that I ended up in this weird sort of fusion of programming and journalism is that I grew up in Palo Alto and started programming in fifth grade. So my parents were the you, early, you early. You went to Palo Alto High School? I did go to Palo Alto okay. High School, also known as Pali. Yeah. So I actually grew up in the personal computer revolution. So, Computers had gone from the size of the stage to the size of this, mm -hmm. and everybody was super excited, including my parents who drove out there in their VW in 1974 and said, like, let's join this. And so I never had um, a typewriter. I learned to code in fifth grade, actually because of Steve Jobs. He had done a program in the Palo Alto schools to have all the kids learn how to program in basic. And I actually thought there were only two life choices. Hardware, software. Right. Okay. So <laughs> you were going to get into compute. Yeah. I yeah. worked in my, so I went to college. I studied math um, at University of Chicago. They didn't have a CS degree. So I took CS classes um, and I spent my summers working at Hewlett Packard. And there was no reason I wasn't going to go back, except that I fell in love with the college paper and started writing for it. And so I thought, well, I'll just do this for a couple years, just as like a rebellion mm -hmm. <laughs> against tech. That worked out for a little while. I was here in D.C. after college. I covered the Hill. and But eventually, in 1996, the San Francisco Chronicle hired me to cover tech because it became clear that there were no reporters who knew anything about it. And so they were like, oh, wait, you've used computers before. Like, please cover technology. Right, right, right. That's about it. Yeah, that's the qualification. That was so, it. Yeah. yeah. So you had had this computer background. Had you had you ever thought of moving into tech itself, like do, getting a job at Google or wherever? No. I mean, after my summers in Hewlett-Packard and college, um, I mean, to be completely candid with you, Kara, the, like my boss there um, was sexually harassing me. And mm -hmm. so I was so young that I didn't know there were any options. And I don't even know if there were options at that time. So one of the main reasons I left tech is I was really early pushed out right, <laughs> right. by Me Too. Right. And so when I had a job waiting for me after college, I thought, you know, I just can't go back to that dude. I'm going to go into journalism. And and that's a that was a good um, choice for me, right. I think. And so, and at that time, tech had been just dominated by men, right? So, as it is today. Yeah. Um. So you, so you decided to get into journalism. You went to the Chronicle and then to the Journal. Yes. Right. So, how did you get into the the idea of using computers to do this? Because this is a, this was an people had been doing it for crime statistics. Yep. And everything else, but you shifted it 
in a different yeah, way. Yeah. So like most newsrooms have like a data desk. Actually, I don't know if all you guys know, but it was called the computer assisted reporting desk. Right. The car desk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that field is still called that, which is kind of terrifying. But what happened was I w- went on book leave to write a book about MySpace because I thought social networking was going to be big. Right. I was right about yeah. That yeah. I was wrong about which one to write a book about. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, when I came back, I thought, you know, the thing I really was shocked about, one of the many things I was shocked about while writing that book was sort of the dawning of the realization that there was a market for personal data, because that's really what the social networks were doing is monetizing your right. data. And so I thought, I want to start an investigative project on that topic. So I started reading like the literature and I found that there was this programmer at Berkeley in graduate school, Ashkan Sultani, who had sort of done this scan of the web to see sort of how much tracking was going on. Mm -hmm. So I convinced my boss to let me hire him as a, just to do that research again for me. And that's how it started. I was just like, oh, that seems cool. That seems like an investigative project. And I hired him. And then that spawned a whole series of articles called What They Know, where I continued to hire him. And I stole programmers off the graphics desk. And I stole them from wherever I could to do all sorts of different types of analysis. And what I found was that that type of reporting, it could lead to more concrete results because the fact that you diagnosed the problem so clearly and you released your data set meant that people could really clearly identify the problem and there was a way to solve it. I right. mean, obviously, we haven't solved any but of those you, problems. But when you were writing those things, there was no ups- being people being upset about it that much. There was some, there was some, the, that they were doing this, they were doing this wholesale ste- taking of data, not stealing, you gave yeah. it up. There wasn't... Um, that much anger over it. It was sort of, it was celebrated. It has been celebrated for a long time. Yeah, no, I was, I was too early, right? Uh, For the outrage. I mean, people were like, why are you writing about this? It's just creepy ads, you know? And I think it, it had to get to the point where the election was, um, where people realized, oh, this is affecting our common discourse in elections. That's why I feel like people woke up in 2016. But when I was writing in 2010, you know, Jeff Jarvis blog, like, this is so dumb. You're taking down, you know, the innovation economy. Like, what a stupid series of articles, right? right. And that right. was kind of a, the common tech view of it. it that this was a good thing, and this was yep. we finally found a business plan, yeah, uh, that works, um, and that people don't care, and they want to willingly give up their information, yeah. Right. That was the thought about it. So I'm going to fast forward to what happened at Markup. So you had moved, you had gone to ProPublica, uh, which is the, the a fantastic organization that does investigative, and had done this again and come across a story around Facebook? Yeah. So basically we, um, we're looking into Facebook and how, what Facebook knew about you. So we, um, we put, we offered readers a tool that let them sort of download all the things that Facebook said it knew about you. And what we noticed was that we didn't, we hadn't realized that they were profiling people by race. And so they would identify you as, um, African-American affinity. So it wasn't quite, it was like you look, their description was actually affinity, meaning like you liked black people, right, which was okay. weird. Um, and so somebody tipped me off the fact that that meant if you if advertisers could choose that category, they could probably discriminate in their ads by race. So we thought, oh, let's see if we can break the fair housing law and make a housing ad that's only targeted to white people. And we put it through the system and it went through. And so we wrote an article like, wow, didn't know you could break the fair housing law. That's cool. Um, yeah. Then um, <laughs> Facebook said, we oh, make? we'll fix it. Like, um, we'll build an algorithm, whatever. They built the algorithm, released it. We tested it again, and we could still break the fair housing law. So then they were like, oh, we'll try it, fix it again. Um, 
HUD began an investigation. Um, and then we noticed other things, right? We felt we actually tested other things. We were able to buy ads. We didn't actually buy the ads. We, um, we noticed actually that employers were putting age categories in their ads. So their ads would only be targeted to people like 18 to 24, which also is a violation of age discrimination laws. So we started looking at more and more different aspects of the way that you could discriminate in advertising. And after about two and a half years, three years, actually it was only about a few weeks ago, um, Facebook finally said it would stop offering those, um, what I call the drop-down racism menus that they were um, right, offering right, before. Right, right. They don't call it that. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> it's really helpful to people to target their ads properly. Right. It's a service. Yes. And were they very, very sorry? They were. They were very, very sorry. Incredibly sorry. Wow. And they actually, do you know what they were going to try to do? Have an I'm sorry tour? They were going to do better. Do better. <laughs> they were going to do better. <laughs> now it's like this. We didn't mean to do this and we're going to do really, really better. They have yeah. hand signals when they do yeah. it. Um, so, uh, not Mark. Um, so when you put into this, what was the attitude towards Facebook? Now you had written about MySpace in your book. Had you seen the power of Facebook? Had you thought about what was happening there? You mean prior to the prior advertising? To yeah, no, actually, back at um, the Wall Street Journal, we had done a story, literally the same story as Cambridge Analytica, about right. um, a company that was taking your voting information, take stealing data from Facebook and using it to target ads. It's just we were too early. It was, right. but but it was literally the same thing. And Facebook, by the way, said they were sorry and that they were going to change the third party controls so that people couldn't steal this data anymore. And right. So, um, so yeah, I'd been you know increasingly concerned about this data market for a long time. And why do you think they have that attitude? Uh, you, you've, you, you've approached them from a computer point of view, which is something they understand. Why do you think they continue to do this? Because t- today there's news they just announced they're going to pay a 3 to $5 billion fine, which is they have it in their drawer. It is not a fine. <laughs> it is not a fine. Let us just say it's not even a, it's not even a, it won't touch them in any way. Right. Um, why do you think they're like this? Well, I mean, it's always hard to prove intent, right? But I guess what yeah, I know we've noticed that. Anyway. <laughs> but I have to say that um, I feel like it's really like there's a, there was a little bit of an engineering mindset. Like I feel like whenever I would talk to the people at Facebook, they'd be like, "Well, if you choose to target ads, like what is the difference between targeting towards a group?" versus having a drop-down menu to exclude a group. Like in the engineering mindset, they literally were like, well, if you could target ads to people with brown hair, like why couldn't you have a drop-down menu to exclude your ads from ever being shown to a black person? Right. And so it was just like this like lack of sort of context, like mm-hmm. about humans and laws mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I feel like maybe there was just like a lack of education about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And w- their response to you was what? They, that, that this was fine. What, it evolved over time. Like the very initial response was, I don't think you understand ad targeting. Right. And then it became, oh, this was a mistake. We're going to fix it, you know. Mm-hmm. And what do you imagine is going to happen today uh, to Facebook and companies like this? Because I think a lot of people feel that people have outrage over privacy, but I don't think people do. I think there's a, they're, they're, they're going to get fined and they're going to move on and find ever more nefarious ways to spy on you. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Google, they paid a almost $6 billion fine to the EU last year. It, didn't, it literally didn't move the stock, make a blip in their earnings, you know, right. didn't change any behavior. So, so we've seen that these companies can weather these kinds of fines. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I try to be optimistic. Like, I do think that um, public 
when they're embarrassed, they try to eventually sort of fix things, but it doesn't feel like systemically there's a fix that anyone is pursuing. And I don't know how that works because these are companies that are almost ungovernable, mm-hmm. right? Like they're, no, they're absolutely ungovernable. Right. I mean, like they, they're bigger than any nation and, and they regulate speech around the world. Like their decisions about what people can say to each other is the decision in any country. And, and every country is struggling with how can I, this is something bigger than me that I can't control. Um, it's a force that I don't think we even know how to deal with in the world. Right. How would you deal with it? I'm not that great at solutions. I'm super good at problems, but I <laughs> do feel like um, that there has to be um, something structural has to change. I, and I don't know what it looks like, but I do feel like it has to be governments have to have some control over how speech happens in their countries. Which happened in Sri Lanka. They just shut it down. Yeah, that happens. And Germany's doing a pretty good job of keeping the Nazis off Facebook. So it's like weird. And Twitter. So like you can go there and have a Nazi free experience mm-hmm. on the internet. And so you realize there is a world where you could have a Nazi free experience. Not cool. in this country. They're trending. We're going to take a quick break now. After this, we'll talk more with investigative journalist Julia Anglin about why she was fired from the markup and what part of the turmoil there she believes was her fault. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's talk about journalism because one of the things that's being impacted by Facebook and Google and the yep. and the changes the changes they've made in targeting is to suck up all the digital advertising yes, dollars. Correct. You decided to go off from ProPublica, where you had the very traditional, even though ProPublica is more of an outlier than the Wall Street Journal than the San Francisco Chronicle, to start the markup. Yeah. Yeah. I, what I, was what the I want, concept? What I wanted to do was I had a little team at ProPublica, two programmers and a researcher, and we were doing our investigations. And, you know, one year we did Facebook. One year we did um, software that was used to assess criminals and predict their future criminality, which we showed was biased against black defendants. Big surprise. And we showed one year we did insur- car insurance, how redlining worked. But each year we had to pick. And I felt like everything is happening all at once. And like, I want four teams like this because the technology is not just impacting like the companies that we think of as tech, Facebook and Google, but every bit of our lives is being algorithmically decided. And some of these decisions, like the criminal risk scores have enormous consequences, incarceration or not. And so my idea was I wanted to scale up this work and sort of build a field around tech accountability journalism. You know, tech journalism had, its origins were really very much fanboy, right? Mm-hmm. And so the field is evolving, but I wanted to build that investigative wing and really make a model for the field of how this could be done using technology to invest 
investigate, investigate technology. So you went around you and to write, to raise money yep. and got how much money? Almost uh, more than twenty three million from mostly from Craig Newmark, who pledged twenty million. Right, who ruined classified advertising for most for the San Francisco Chronicle, for example, <laughs> Craigslist founder. Yeah. So he was taking his money, and he's talked about this. He was taking his money that wrecked newspapers to try to do something about it. He said that to me. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll let you put words in his mouth. <laughs> I, I shall. He said that. Um, so you you $23 million to form a team to, to look at just, to take, instead of just what had been done, which is piecemeal or else someone like me, which I just stand outside of tech companies and yell at them. From, from the, <laughs> which, from the by side. the way, is very effective. I know it is. It's really effective. Uh, and I will continue to do so. So you decided to do this. You got two partners. One was someone you work with at ProPublica. Yeah, my colleague, Jeff Larson, who he and I had been doing uh, these investigations together for years. Mm -hmm. um, and then she, he and I recruited this woman, Sue Gardner, who'd run Wikimedia Foundation to be our business partner because we knew that um, we had heard that journalists were not good at running businesses. Yeah. And so we thought we needed someone to to help us with that. Right. And you'd seen people trying this. Stuff. I've tried. I, I, yeah. uh, 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 lot, there's lots been lots of efforts in this area. Yeah. What did you think was going to Vox itself? Yeah, uh, was was within the Washington Post and then moved to here. Yeah, um, what did you think about going into business as a reporter? And the word is reporterpreneur, in case you're interested. Oh, yeah. geez, I didn't know that. Please, please don't use it ever again. So go ahead. I won't. <laughs> so did you did you worry about that part of it? I did worry about it, but I actually felt like the nonprofit model that we were pursuing had a little bit more hope. Um, I feel like the for-profit model has led to. Um, it's just been really hard because it, it doesn't, it really, it trends towards clickbait, you know, and you have to really push against that because the ad model is really this incredibly transactional model and it's not based on the quality of your audience at all. So I was hopeful that we could sort of build a nonprofit model by getting our readers to understand that like we weren't going to have any tracking on the website. It was going to be very privacy protecting. It was going to feel like a service, you know, because a lot of places that charge subscriptions, but then they still track you and still advertise to you. And it's like, come on guys, you know, so we felt like, okay, maybe people would donate the amount that they would have subscribed somewhere because they understood that we were on their side. We weren't selling their data, collecting it at right. all. So it's the not, it was pro public. It's a nonprofit model that you would have people who supported yeah. you, which is like a subscription, yeah. essentially, and then money from rich people. Yeah, right. Okay. Combination. you got right. to always have a billionaire in right. journalism these apparently. days. Apparently. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so you did that and then moved into this. So I, I guess the only question is like, what the hell happened? <laughs> yes. So I did a kind of founder's mistake, which was when I, re I recruited Sue to be the, uh, the business partner. And um, I didn't really, we didn't talk about what our roles would be until we were a couple weeks away from closing the, the gift from Craig. And then she said, she gave me an ultimatum that she would quit if I didn't make her CEO and my boss. And I was scared. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my God, we're going to lose this money. How do I go back to him and say like, we're starting again with a different team. And so I, I said, okay, well, I'll agree to that because honestly, I didn't want to do a lot the business side stuff. So I thought like, most of that job is actually stuff I don't want to do, but I need an employment guarantee. I need a contract so that um, I can't be fired at will. And she said, sure, let's totally do that. But let's, um, it's going to take a couple of months. Let's just close this stuff and we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And uh, we never got to it. Right. Um, and so that's why I was fired uh, by email on Monday. Um. Right. right. So you, what, what was the problem? The, you, I know starting things, like I started mine with Walt Mossberg. Yeah. We had plenty of fights. We yeah. had plenty of issues. We had less fights than we had agreements, which was 
that's the way it should work, yeah. essentially. But in starting these things, it's really, uh, and we had a for profit model and we had events and uh, yeah. complex things. What happened there? So you had, what was your, what was your fault? What did you do wrong? Like you said, first of all, you didn't get this guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we weren't aligned on the vision as much as I thought, right? Because once we started getting into it, it just became clear that she was taking a much more anti-tech position than I. And I'm obviously known for being very skeptical about tech, but I'm but I'm a reporter. I, I go in with the facts, right? Mm-hmm. And there were just, uh, we had numbers of meetings where she was talking about how we should have a take, write a policy paper about a position on tech, how we should be a cause, not a publication. She built a spreadsheet ranking all of the employees that I was thinking about hiring by how skeptical they were on tech and how negative and whether, and wanted them to be more negative. And I felt like not only these were morally questionable, but they were legally very risky. Mm-hmm. And, and so we had a lot of conflict about that. And I started to feel very nervous about where this was going. Was this going to be an advocacy uh, organization? Because honestly, I, I could sort of see why from a financial point of view, probably it's easier to raise money if you're like, we're out there swinging, right? And so from a business side perspective, that may right. have been a better play. Well, talk about that, the difference between skepticism and being negative. Yeah. Like, because I get accused of being super negative all the time, like yeah. constantly. And I think it's fair. It's a fair point of view. I yeah. think I've been with them long enough to, to be warning people about yeah. what's happening. Talk about that idea because you want to, there are advocacy uh publications. Yes. Right. I guess you might put Mother Jones in there. You might put some Mm -hmm. others, but you didn't think of yourself as that. No, because I actually had this other idea where, so I really felt like journalism is always put on the pedestal objectivity, which is this weird neutral tone and point of view. And it really has led basically to false equivalency, right? On the one hand, climate change is happening. On the other hand, some random person says it's not. And and the, the truth is that's not a fair representation of what The reality is the fair Mm -hmm. representation is that 99% of the science suggests that climate change is happening and 1% of people who don't have credentials say it's not. So I wanted to move a little bit more towards what I call the scientific method approach, which was you have a hypothesis. Hypothesis. Facebook allows drop-down menu for racism that allows advertisers to break the law. Test that hypothesis. Okay, how much data do we need to collect? We can, in that particular case, buy one ad, you've basically proven it. Some hypotheses need thousands of data points, right? For criminal risk scores, we collected 18,000 scores of of defendants. So, and then you basically say, here's our finding. Our finding is X and here's our limitations. So the limitations of our finding is we couldn't test every ad on Facebook, right? right? And so I felt like that was our approach. And that is different than Mother Jones and the nation, but it's also different than normal journalism. It's just, it was just an idea of, could we bring more scientific approach? Because I feel right now, despite all the craziness in the world, I do feel data changes the narrative. When you bring data to the table, people are willing to take it on board and it does lead to change and impact and policy changes. And so I felt like that was our call, our calling as a journalist was to bring that data to the table so that we could make change. And what happened? Um, well, so I don't know why I was fired, right? She would never gave me a reason. The, the reason that's been out there is the management issues, leadership. Um, that's what she said. You didn't hire fast enough. Yeah. Did you not hire fast enough? We, uh, I wish we had been hiring faster, but we had a pretty aggressive hiring schedule. So I felt like we were definitely on track to launch in July. Um, we had our, we had some investigative stories that were coming down the closing finish line. I felt like excited about it. But she, um, 
she took me aside in January with um, with Jeff, the two of them, and they said, uh, you're you're not suited to be editor in chief. And the reasons were things like you don't like meetings. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, but right. I did go to all of them. I went right. to all the meetings, but I just didn't like them. Another reason was I didn't, I wouldn't agree to take a personality test. Um, I don't believe they're based on evidence. And, uh, she was right. really insistent that, um, she needed a me a personality to take one, test, a personality test. Like which one? There were a couple Enneagram right. or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what these things are. Yeah. Um, and so there were a whole bunch of reasons like that, that I wasn't suited to leadership. Right. But it wasn't a performance improvement plan. Like, here's the ways you can grow as a leader or anything right. like that. It was right. just a negative And this is thing. someone who had not run a publication previously. I mean, I think she ran some the, the Canadian we, Broadcasting right. Corporation Internet right. Right. site. So she, she's been in journalism, like radio right. and TV. Um, right. So that was disturbing. That's when I sort of realized that, oh, maybe things aren't going that well, right? Right, right. <laughs> and then uh, we continued to have conflicts about the mission and the advocacy. And then in the end of March, she and Jeff took me to dinner again and said um, that I was failing as editor-in-chief and bringing down the markup. And once again, there was no plan of how I could improve. It was just a declaration. And then said, you know, you're probably better suited as a columnist. And um, I was like, oh, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really a columnist, you know. I mean, I was like, every once in a while I've written an op-ed here or there right, <laughs> about right. an investigation I did. Right. Um, so it wasn't, it didn't, I just said, so like, you would not step sense. down in the way they wanted you to. Yeah. They asked, but they didn't offer, like, honestly, they, they didn't even offer me a job. It was just like, right. you might be suited as a columnist, but there was no job description of like what that would look like and what were your rules be or anything. Right. So I wrote them a letter with my lawyer saying, look, it seems like you're reneging on your agreement to give me my employment contract. It's been sitting with you. My lawyer has given it to you, but I'm not going to step down as editor-in-chief because I have promised our donors and our employees that it will pursue a particular vision. And I don't have faith that you're going to carry that out. And you thought they were going to do much more advocacy. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. And yeah. I don't actually know what they're going to do because there's two journalists left in the newsroom and I don't know right. what that publication is at this right. moment. But that's where it looked like it was heading. And I didn't feel like I could stay there and not be the person in charge of editorial. And so... I wrote that letter and then, uh, and then she fired me. And she fired you. Yeah. So what happens now? Now, just Je uh, Jeff has written a, a very problematic memo, a very defensive memo, which, mm -hmm. I, which I said on the internet yesterday, um, <laughs> about what's going on and begging mm -hmm. the people to come back, which yep. is odd at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it's worth putting out. So all, um, there were seven reporters. Five of them resigned Quit. after um, I was forced out. Right. So yeah. five, most of the staff is yep. gone. Craig has given this money. Now he's written a note and tweeted that he's thinking of reconsidering it. Yeah. So what happens? I don't know. I don't know how this plays out. I have to brush up on my like coup literature. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can help you there. <laughs> I can help you a lot, actually. Um, right. I, actually, somebody told me that the coup's already happened. I have to, this is the counter coup. The right? counter coup. Yes, it's the counter coup. <laughs> We've got to get some uh, mother of dragons into you. Um, <laughs> I can help. So what what do you want to do now then? Well, and then we'll get some questions from the oh, audience. I, I actually just I just want to do the thing I was doing. <laughs> I mean, it would be awesome if I could just do that. Like I we had some great investigations. I feel like we were we were going to launch. I had some great people who were going to come. Um the people who were there are great. If I could do this somehow somewhere, that's what I would do. I want to build this field. This is too important an issue for there not to be a team like this doing this type of work. It doesn't have to be at the markup. It can be somewhere, but I'm going to try to figure out a way to make it happen. 
We're going to take another break now. After this, we'll talk more with investigative journalist Julia Angwin about how she defines scientific journalism and whether it's easier to raise money for a media startup when you have an ideological goal. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Questions from the audience? Right here. Hi. Um, I'm really interested in what you said about it being easier to raise money for a journalism organization that's focused more on advocacy. Can you talk more about that and maybe suggest an alternative business model or model in general for journalism that can be more objective but also investigative? Yeah, I'm actually not sure about that, but I do feel like I could imagine that like people donate to their favorite causes. And I can understand why you might want to position your journalism as a cause. What I feel, though, about that is that from my experience doing this type of work, that it undermines your findings. When you go in with an agenda, um, you have to be willing to follow where the data leads you. Um, and so I think it's a dangerous road. I can see it's tempting, but I think it's dangerous for for the pursuit of truth. Because in the end, Facebook sucks is their, your end point, right? yeah. for example, which it probably is true. It's probably accurate, but it's but you but you don't want to start with that. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt when you start something. And you could go down another road, for example. Yeah, no, and many times our stories have taken many surprising turns, right? So um, we were looking at Amazon. I had been told that there was a if you shopped on your mobile phone versus desktop, you would get different prices. So we put all this testing software up in the Amazon cloud, of course, and ran tests on Amazon from <laughs> Amazon cloud. And um, and we found no results. We right. were like, oh, there's nothing here. Right. And I thought that was really disappointing, but happened. And then I went to drinks with um, Barry Lynn, the guy from Open Markets Institute. And I was like, yeah, we looked into Amazon. We couldn't find anything. And he said, oh, well, have you tested... Um, the real question with Amazon is how do they treat themselves as a seller on their own platform that they control? Right. So we tweaked our hypothesis. We said, okay, let's ask that question. We already had all this stuff running. And boom, we were like, oh my gosh, they give themselves a huge advantage when of this when they're the seller or when it's the, their favorite sellers, the what are they called? I, I've forgotten the name, but um the 
um, ones who pay them fees to be um, in their warehouses fulfilled by Amazon. And so uh, then we were like, oh, we had a huge finding. And that's and that's where you just let the facts lead you to where you want to go. Right. So they were up to something. You just didn't find the thing they were up to. Yeah. Right. One thing. And that would make more sense for them to advantage themselves. That's right. one of the big and issues. And also, we would have been fine with no finding, right? Like, right. I mean, if there's nothing to find, then there's nothing to find. Right. But you keep looking and yeah. pushing at various parts. Um, but advocacy is is fine, too. It's There's a lot of there's a lot of people of points of view who do reported, yeah. reported analysis. I also feel analysis. like there is plenty, like, I actually feel like we're not lacking right now for opinions about tech online, right. Right. in my feeling. Right. And so <laughs> I felt like that space was fully owned. It was good. It was great. Everyone's right. doing it. We could bring a, just a different piece to the table. Okay. Over here. Thanks so much for coming out. Um, I'm interested in your take on media literacy for youth and how we are educating um, like high schoolers in particular to like consume the news. Um, so how do you, and how does that relate to the work that you're doing with, with data where um, a lot of people in general and, and young people don't really care about data. They just like want the, the stories and they don't sometimes respond to data mm-hmm. in the ways that uh, we want them to. So how do we um, teach young people to be um, more, uh, I care more about like what the data is saying rather than other, other, other frivolous things. I, I will push back on you. I have a son who literally is like, I call him Wiki, Wikipedia, walking Wikipedia because he has so many, well, not those facts, but he's so factually oriented that he will not talk about anything else. So it's an interesting change, but how do you? Yeah, I'm not sure I believe, I'm not sure that hypothesis uh, is true. I'd like to see the data <laughs> for that. Um, but I, but I do think that like media literacy in general is a, is a challenge. And I, and I actually just feel like that's a classic case of pushing the burden onto the user, right? Like um, the fact is that if you're being completely spammed with lies all the time, like is it actually your responsibility? <laughs> like, I feel like one thing that we kind of haven't paid attention to enough is the literature around persuasion and the fact that all of us are very persuadable. And we used to have information gatekeepers who had certain standards and they didn't publish things that were untrue. And the reason was they were at risk for a lawsuit, yeah. right? The Wall Street Journal, where Kara and I worked together for years, um, you know, every story in there we could be sued for. We could be sued for the letters to the editor. Those were right. fact-checked, right? The advertisements we were actually responsible for. The internet companies got a special exemption um, in the 1996 Telecom Act so that they're not liable for anything that anyone writes on their platforms. It's, uh, sec- if you'd like to know, so I'm going to write about it in the New York Times next week, and they're very nervous. Um, Section 230 <laughs> of the Communications Decency Act um, gives internet companies broad immunity from anything that flows over. It's sort of treating them like a phone company, essentially. Um, and it was done at the time, and I was there and I wrote about it for the Washington Post, actually, uh, in order to allow these companies to grow. They were small startups and they didn't want to be sued out of existence from the very get-go. And AOL was a big part of pushing for that and other and other, other sites at the time were. And so what they did is got, got this broad, broad immunity. And um, I, uh, it was, it was a, I just interviewed Nancy Pelosi about it and she said it was a gift that they're abusing. Um, and it certainly was a gift. And so the question is, do we want to allow people who are the richest people on earth now from using this this gift uh, to abuse it further? And I think it's a, it's been chipped away over um, issues of FOSTA and... Uh, yeah, but there's only one shipping, one, I think, one so shipping. far. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, do you remove it for the large companies? Do Does the world's richest 
do the world's richest people deserve immunity from behavior? Because what's resulted is uh, it's sort of like giving kids um, sugar all the time. And sugar, you can have sugar, sugar, you can keep your room messy, you can do this. What do you imagine is going to result? And this is why we have what we, I, this is my belief, but it's other people have different beliefs. So it's going to be a big question. But as to younger people, I do think they get inundated. It's like sludge. You can't be protected from it. I, the government really should be protecting people from this or lawyers suing, <laughs> you know. Let's In the U.S., lawyers. we usually choose lawyers. lawyers yeah. yeah. So question right here. Huge fan of your podcast. Thank you. My question is, if there's a uh, politician that starts getting rhetorically and legislatively very tough on tech, do you believe that the tech companies will kind of resort and hunker down like the hydrocarbon companies did in the 80s and 90s? Uh, they've hired a lot of lobbyists. You might look at that. There's a lot of data on that, like in terms of they didn't have lobbyists before and now they have a ton of lobbyists, first of all. Um, I think their approach is a little different than, say, a big oil or big, you know, banking or stuff like that. They're very... Um, They'll show up, they'll apologize, they'll have meetings, they'll have dinners, they'll have thought time. Um, Mark is having a lot of dinners with smart people, like he's getting his Harvard education now, which is kind of fascinating. Um, uh, he's having these, he'll invite, and everyone will go, like, you you know, if you're, I don't know, the guy who wrote the Hamilton book, Ron Cherna, you'd go to dinner with Mark Zuckerberg, right? Why not? Um, and so uh, they're doing it that way. Um, I think they're allowing the discussions to go on and then secretly behind the scenes sort of trashing people like, correct? I mean, I don't know. I think they seem to be, it's a different way approach, uh, but there's no question they're doing heavy duty lobbying on lots and lots of issues that affect them. I think the question is who can they, they try to find people they can work with on their side, like you have someone like Senator Warner, uh, who's very tough on them on some issues or Senator, um, Klobuchar is more, is tougher on them. Um, Senator Bennett is moving into that direction. Sen Senator Wyden is very interested in voting machines. That's more of his area. So that's, they, they, they tend to try to co-op them. Um, when I wrote a column this week about Sri Lanka, um, the first call was a Facebook person saying, hey, girl, want to chat? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> call me Friday and then Friday I'll not pick up the phone. Um, so it, it's a much softer approach. I just I don't I can't explain it, but it's just as effective. Um, and I, they certainly will. I think they'll, Mark's piece about his um, wanting legislation was fascinating. You should read between the lines of that particular thing, I think. Okay, quickly here and here. I'm interested in the notion of scientific journalism in an era in which uh, there's a live uh, examining of science itself. There's between, you know, p-hacking and replication problems. Um, science, you know, academic science has has started examining how rigor, how the apparent rigor isn't actually as as real as we thought. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I say scientific journalism, and what I mean by that is it's better than the normal journalism, which is three anecdotes and you're out, right? So we, when I, when we had our meeting with Craig, he was like, "Okay, I, let me just see. I understand this. Basically, all you're talking about is increasing the sample size." I was like, "Yes, that's basically it." Um, <laughs> That's not entirely true, right? Like, so we have a data ethics policy, or we had at the markup, which um, which actually said we will not do p hacking, and also that we aim for replicable results, and we will publish our data as and our code as often as possible, which is what I've done all my 
career. And so I do think journalism can aspire to um, the, the, the standards of science, but we are journalists, right? And so I think of us as the first people over out of the trenches, right? We're doing the first draft. And then actually science usually comes in and does a lot of follow-up work to validate and solidify the results. This happened with our work on criminal risk scores. We put out the data set. There's been I think I have more academic citations than my husband, who's a professor, because it's been replicated and written about so much. Um, and it's really moved the field in terms of uh, the, the field of computer science, um, fairness, and algorithms. We have to go, but the very last question, uh, what would you investigate right now if you, could, if, if you had a publication to work for? <laughs> you will. Try to break my heart over here. <laughs> um, um, God, there's so much. But, you know, one of the things I'm really upset about is the use of algorithms to score people in ways that actually aren't really seen as tech. Your resume is sent through an algorithm, right? People work for algorithms, fired by algorithms, people who work at um, in And so this idea that, um, and I do, I just think it's worth pointing out, the people who are scored and sifted by algorithms, strangely, are often people of color and poor people. And so we're getting into a world where actually some people get human judgment and some people are judged by machines. And that's a very upsetting thing. Thanks again to Julia Angwin for joining me on stage at Vox.com's fifth anniversary party. If you enjoyed it, we think you'll also enjoy our live taping of Vox's The Weeds and a special episode of The Ezra Klein Show featuring Vox.com's co-founders Ezra Klein, Matt Iglesias, and Vox Media's publisher, Melissa Bell. To listen to them, just search for Vox's The Weeds and The Ezra Klein Show in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app, or just tap the links in the show notes. Thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter, at Kara Swisher. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks to you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.